a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! It's Superman! Man of the Superman! Superman rocketed to Earth as an infant when the distant planet Krypton exploded. And who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild planet reporter for the Daily Planet, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and freedom with superpowers far beyond those of ordinary mortals. It's Superman! 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 Man of Screen. Hey everybody, welcome to the Man of Screen Podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo. In this episode, we're going to look at two more half hours of the new adventures of Superman. We're still in season one. We're going to look at the next four Superman segments, which will be 13 to 16 of season one. The Magnetic Monster, The Toys of Doom, those will surround the Superboy segment, The Visitor from the Earth Core, and then we'll... Finish things off with the Iron Eater, the Superboy segment, the beast that went berserk, and then we'll finish things off on this episode with the Ape Army of the Amazon, the second Superman segment of the second half hour. Try to say that five times fast. However, before we get to that, there is some feedback to attend to. I have a letter from, you guessed it, from Dave McElvenny. And Dave is writing in on episode 69, in which Bob Fisher and I talked about the death of George Reeves and our look at Hollywood. So Dave writes, Greetings, Mike and Bob. This was a good wrap-up of your look at the Adventures of Superman series. I'm CCing Bob Fisher on this email, because I'm not sure how long it will be before he makes his next guest appearance. Yeah, Dave, uh, I'm not sure when Bob will be back either, but... As, you know, our mission to cover the Adventure of Superman is done. But I am sure I'll find reasons to get him on the show. At the very least, on some Man of Screen Extra episodes when we talk about some other things. But he'll be back, don't worry. So, first, let me thank you for your kind comment on Facebook after you recorded this episode. Telling me that I'd become part of the show. That made my day, and my week, at least. And, uh, you're welcome, Dave. It is sad that the TV show came to an end the way it did, and that George Reeves never got to see how beloved he'd become by kids of several different generations for many years to come. I always got the feeling that he really did like kids and seemed to have a special rapport with them, so I like to think that he'd have been happy about that. Certainly both Noel Neal and Jack Larson seem to have good memories of their time on the show and real affection for the fans over the years. It's definitely true that whoever had the idea to film season 3 through 6 in color, that was instrumental in giving the show its longevity and reruns. While it's true that there are still reruns of all black and white shows on TV nowadays, with MeTV and Decades and Cozy and Antenna TV and the like, I don't know that before such dedicated nostalgia channels on cable, reruns of Superman in drab black and white would never have thrived in, say, the 70s and 80s. Superman really does need color. It's also pretty obvious that Jack Larson's performances as Jimmy Olsen did a lot to reinvigorate the character in the comics. And without that, there probably wouldn't be a Jimmy Olsen character very much in evidence through the remainder of the 20th century or today. I think it would be a nice gesture if at some point in an episode of Supergirl, the James Olsen character could make even some subtle nod to Jack Larson, either with a name check or some small comedic moment reminiscent of one of Jack's bits. Maybe he could go undercover disguised as a telephone repairman. A big company like, like LexCorp must still have landlines. Yeah, Dave, you would think they'd still have landlines. They probably all have Bluetooth, though. So anyway, back to Dave. I especially liked your point, Mike, that one of the things you've gotten out of rewatching all these episodes with an eye to detail is that you've learned a lot about them in more depth than before. I know I've certainly learned many things I hadn't known before from your coverage, and I pay more attention to the smaller details than I did before. And that 
makes it more fun. Enjoy your two brief hiatus this summer, and I wish you much luck and happiness with your new baby. I look forward to hearing what in heaven's name you make of Super Pup, and you have my sympathy on that note. Live long and prosper, Dave McElvenny. And Dave, well, by now, by even though at the time I'm recording this, the Super Pup episode has not dropped yet. By the time anyone hears this, that'll be four episodes in the past, so I'm sure I will probably be reading your letter regarding that on the next episode. Not having dropped the episode yet, I'm already guessing that you've, you're going to write a letter on it. So, And uh, there are some other people who have uh, who I know have watched it. I'm looking at Gene Hendricks at this point. He said his daughter in a Facebook post that his daughter suggested it get the Rift Tracks treatment. I warned him to not give me any ideas. I had even toyed with the idea of doing the Super Pup episode as a commentary, but I just didn't want to watch it again in order to comment on it. So, a- anyway, uh, Dave added an addendum to his letter. And here it is. Oh, another thing. Mike, at one point you mentioned the need to view these older shows, keeping in mind that they were made in and for a different time, and that also you didn't think kids nowadays have the patience or tolerance for the black and white. My experience suggests that both of these points are true. Sometime back in the late 80s or early 90s, I saw that Casablanca, my all-time favorite movie, was going to be shown at a nearby theater. I had never seen it on the big screen and was excited to go. A couple of my younger teaching colleagues, one of them a former student of mine, had never seen it at all, so I invited them to go with me. When the movie started, the two of them literally whined, it's in black and white, and later during the opening sequence showing a spinning globe laugh that no one would think that's the actual Earth. It was a terrible experience seeing that, that classic film with them. I don't say their behavior is universal, but it's certainly not uncommon. Yeah, Dave, I would definitely say that's, uh, that's true. I know from personal experience, some members of my immediate family. Don't actually, won't watch anything in, in black and white. It's color or nothing. So, you know, to each their own. We live in the day of uh, saturated colors and high definition. The love for the classic fuzzy black and white has definitely uh, gone the way of the dodo. Even if it's the only way you can watch certain classics. So I'd like to uh, thank Dave for his final letter on the adventures of Superman. And I am hoping to hear from Dave in the future. I noticed that Dave didn't comment at all on Hollywoodland. But, you know, we know Dave. He likes to talk about the more positive stuff, and I applaud Dave for that. So we're going to move on to uh, our next letter. This is from Chris Cavanaugh. subject is The End and a few other things. Enjoyed your coverage of Hollywoodland. I liked the way the movie presented three alternate scenarios for George's death and left the resolution open-ended. Michael Hayes' excellent Flights of Fancy provides an expanded overview with eight scenarios motivations, and Chris uh, attached uh, an excerpt I will... Uh, put the link in the show notes. I suspect you're familiar with the book, but I've inserted the link just in case. And I will, like I said, I'll put that in the show notes. And then Chris writes to Bob. I thought of you when I saw this on CBR because I believe you covered this tale in one of your giant Superman podcasts, Superman 80 page giant number one. And he is referring to the, uh, the Superman story. I'm not sure if Bob covered that on giant Superman. Maybe he did, I don't know. But I know he covered it on a recent uh, Superman Forever radio. So Chris writes that Brian Cronin's knowledge of Silver Age and Bronze Age Legends of Trivia is impressive, and he has a couple of books on Amazon, too. Finally, I try to visit a local comic shop when traveling. Recently in Denver, I picked up a giant Superman from 1971, specifically because I saw its cover had the Superman vs. Luther story you recently covered on Superman Forever Radio. And he attached the picture to the email. I'll link to all that in the show notes. And I'd like to thank both Chris and Dave for writing in. Letters are always appreciated. You can send uh, any feedback you like to manofscreen at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment or two in the Facebook group, or you can leave me a review on iTunes. Those are some surefire ways to get your feedback read on the show. All right, so I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a podcast promo. Then I'm going to come back with The Magnetic Monster, The Visitor from the Earth's Core, 
and the Toys of Doom. Hang around, folks. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it, from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start with the Superman segment, The Magnetic Monster. And all three of these episodes had an original broadcast date of October 22nd, 1966. The Magnetic Monster was written by Oscar Bensall. And this synopsis will is, as they all are, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Aliens from the planet Deimos, which is actually one of the two Martian moons, test out their new magnetic gadget on Earth as a test for their coming invasion. Metal Marauder test model ready for release, sir. Activate electromagnetizer. If this prototype performs as anticipated, we shall render Earth helpless with 10,000 like it. Electromagnetizer at maximum. It release servo. Their gizmo flies around magnetically attaching itself to airplanes, bridges, and other metallic objects, melting them into a soft mess. Superman attempts to stop the gadget, saving Lois twice in the process, until he eventually sets it on its own creators, melting their spaceship. Alright, this is a pretty straightforward segment. Uh, it's basically Superman fighting an alien electromagnet that's kind of wreaking havoc on the world here. So it starts with an Air Force weather balloon... And it immediately scrolls up to a spaceship because, you know, it seems like every other segment of this show has a spaceship. There, and here is our, at least our third green aliens. These are wearing red and orange suits. You know, just kind of a quick glance, they look like space frogs. I'm not sure, and I'm not sure what that big hat on their head is for, but obviously, according to the narration, they are from a Martian moon, Deimos, which actually is one of the Martian moons. The other is Phobos, just in case you were wondering. So, yay for correct science! And they're going to render the Earth helpless with an electromagnet. A lot of things are built with metal on the Earth in the 1960s and today, so you probably could render the planet helpless with an electromagnet. Seems easy enough. At least these aliens are smart enough not to activate their magnet until it's far away from their spaceship. So that's a checkmark in the plus column for the Demotians. And so this uh, little flying magnet is basically wrecking everything in its path. First goes the weather balloon, and then it attaches itself to an airplane. Lois and Clark, meanwhile, have just finished covering the county fair. And take it from me, someone who has covered the county fair for a newspaper, it sucks. It's, you know, not as bad for a photographer, because all you have to do is take a bunch of pictures, make sure they're in focus, and get the names correct. Although there are still a few that work for me that struggle with all three of those areas. But writing about the county fair is a task from hell. I mean, these things go on for days. Unless you're covering a specific event at the fair, if you're doing a kind of a general story, try finding something different to write about every day. It'll just make you want to pull your hair out. Ugh, too many bad memories. Plus, the uh, guy who ran the fair when I had to cover was a real, uh, we'll just, we'll just leave it at, at that, shall we? But anyway, Clark spots the plane spiraling into the ground. You know, probably the most interesting thing that has ever happened at the state fair, or county fair, whatever kind of fair it is. Superman catches the plane, which looks quite deformed, and Superman comments on it feeling like soft rubber, so yay for description. What happened to your ship, Lieutenant? I don't know, Superman. I checked it out myself before takeoff. Yeah. 
I saw a strange object clinging to your wing. I'd better find it fast. Up, up, and away! The pilot has no idea what happened, but Superman found it strange. You know, I, I think I find it strange when I'm, I'm not sure what airplanes are made out of, but they're made out of some kind of strong metal, whether it's titanium or something else. But, you know, Superman found it strange that it felt like uh, soft rubber, and you should too. And even though the pilot checked it out, the uh, deformities such as the rubbery hull are probably way beyond the normal wear and tear that you would find on an Air Force air fighter jet. So after, uh... Superman talks to the pilot for a minute. The magnet is still wreaking havoc. Uh, now it's uh, caught and melted a train and blew that up. You know, Superman is flying after it. He still says, down and faster. Narrate his movements, which is something Bud Collier did in the early days of the radio show. With the audio medium, that's really the only way to convey to the listener which direction Superman was moving. But here the animation mostly handles that, so it's kind of redundant. Thus, Superman catches the magnet, but it is but is struggling to control it. It actually drags him to a crane and destroys that, but, you know, Superman just throws it away, which sounds dangerous because it could just hook onto something else. Well, the aliens had an answer for that, too, and, of course, it latches onto the bridge that Lois is crossing. So, forsaking all others, Superman carries Lois's car off the bridge immediately without tending to the magnet. Apparently, such behavior is not exclusive to Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, but it does give Superman a chance to uh, deliver some exposition about the about the magnet. What caused that to happen to the bridge? Some weird gadget, and I must destroy it before it does more harm. Up, up, and away! And while Lois ponders calling the story into the Daily Planet, Superman grabs the magnet off the bridge. And I like the animation here, you know. I don't always praise the animation in this show, and uh, we're getting to see his effort as his feet are lodged on the bridge, and he's kind of pushing off, struggling to uh, disengage this thing from the bridge. So after he gets it free, Superman punches it, it shatters into a million pieces, then puts itself back together. Stubborn little device. I'd be pretty frustrated with this thing by now. Now, this magnet must uh, like Lois as it attaches to the watchtower that she uh, climbed to get a good view of the, of the proceedings, and Superman saves her before the tower falls. And now, all of a sudden, Superman has an idea. He's going to take the uh, magnet into space where it can't do any more harm, and, and then he kind of then he kind of stumbles on the Demotion ship. It's the Demotions at it again. Well, I'll give them a taste of their own magnetic medicine. Like this. The Marauder! It is on our ship! Quick, turn off the electromagnetic power! I fear the Earthman has defeated us with our own weapon! The game's over, boys. Time to go home. Ben basically attaches the magnet to the alien ship, and they get a taste of their own medicine. Well, you know how I mentioned earlier in the episode that they were smart by not activating the magnet so close to them? Well, maybe they should have uh, demagnetized their hull or something, just so the magnet wouldn't be attracted. Or at least polarized by a light pole so the magnets would repel. Not very smart aliens, if you ask me. Although I'm not sure if such a thing is even possible. It's a cartoon, so I guess if the writers wanted it to be possible, it would have been possible. So these aliens are showing their real lack of foresight, and Superman just kind of chases them home. And now we get the ending. It was a nightmare, Clark. First the bridge, and then the tower. Yes, any idea what caused it? Oh, some crazy magnetic gadget, Superman said. Why do these things always pick on me? I guess it's because you have such a magnetic personality. Nice little ending. Wasn't a bad segment. It's fun to see Superman struggle with the magnet, you know. I don't understand why the device picked on Lois either, but it did. You know, of course she did choose to go to all of the metallic places that she went to, so maybe it wasn't all the magnet's fault. Sometimes Lois just does dumb things that Superman has to save her from. 
Next is the Super Voice segment, The Visitor from the Earth's Core. Writer is Oscar Bensall. Here's our synopsis. On a mission to retrieve samples of radioactive rock from deep within the Earth's core, Superboy and Crypto also find a strange black sphere, which they bring back with them. Used in the tunnel they dug, a crystalline creature emerges and begins tearing across the countryside. Thanks to Crypto, Superboy soon realizes that the black sphere is actually the crystalline creature's egg. And after hatching the baby, Superboy and Crypto lead the mother back to her baby and steal them back within their underground home. Alright, so this is a pretty straightforward uh, segment here. Another creature's egg is being moved and threatened and the mama creature is uh, upset about it. And this episode starts off with Superboy and Crypto kind of going on a field trip to the Earth's core. I mean, the episode doesn't tell you right off the bat that they're searching for something for the scientists, so you're led to believe they're just going to the Earth's core because they've got nothing else to do that day. But that is a nice animation of Superboy and Crypto punching through the rock on their way to the core. Apparently, they're searching for a certain kind of rock for the geologist. So, they find uh, what they're looking for, they find the glowing black sphere, and off they go back to the lab. And now the very slowly talking scientists are going to study the rock. They try to destroy it. They can't do so with a 51 hammer or a diamond drill. But speaking of diamond, here comes a diamond creature coming up from the Earth's core through this hole Superboy dug. I guess if you're going to dig a hole to the center of the Earth, you probably should close it when you're done. You never know when a living, breathing diamond is going to find its way to the surface. So here comes the radio signal from the state police to Superboy. and that's State police calling Superboy. Urgent. A fantastic crystalloid monster has invaded Earth. Report to Mountain Road at once. Crystalloid monster? I'd better take off, Dad. Yes, son. Sounds like a job for Superboy. It's a nice shirt, right? Much better than what we get in the Superman segment. I haven't read a ton of Superboy comics. I'll level with you right there. So I'll have to ask Bob or John M. Wilson if uh, the radio signal is something we see a lot in the comics. I do remember when I talked about the uh, unaired Superboy pilot from 1961, the way Superboy was alerted to uh, the police calling for him was a lamp in the Kent living room would start blinking to notify him of what was going on. Then he'd go in his secret room to uh, take the call. So either way, the police are no match for the diamond creature. Superboy punches it, but its nose falls off and goes right back on. <laughs> he does this like three or four times and it's rather amusing. And, you know, <laughs> So apparently Crypto is tugging on Superboy's cape. You know, I guess you shouldn't tug on Superman's cape, but Superboy's cape is just fine to tug on, especially if you're Crypto. So, uh, Crypto summons Superboy back to the see the scientist. Uh, Superboy tells the people to keep away from the diamond creature while he meets with the scientist. You would not have to tell me twice to stay away from the moving diamond creature. I guess that's a problem in Smallville, with people just kind of assuming they should go near the walking diamond creature. I wouldn't, so let's move on. So, uh... The scientist tells Superboy the origin of the monster came from the hole they dug. That's right, kid. It's all your fault. Clean up your mess next time. Oh, Superboy. The state police asked us to find the origin of that crystalloid monster. Any luck? Well, this aerial photo of its path shows it emerged from the tunnel you dug to the Earth's core. But, but where? How? We believe it plunged out of space ages ago, when Earth was still molten. Since then, it has been imprisoned by radioactive rock. And my digging this tunnel released it? That's right. Quiet, Crypto. What's bothering you now? So that's why you brought me here. Well, if you're right, Crypto... He understands what the dog's saying. Can it be telepathy? I'll check with X-ray vision. You are right. That round rock is an egg with a baby crystalloid inside. It's all clear now. 
that crystallized monster out there is hunting for its egg. And I've got an idea how we can get rid of it. Now, Crypto, we'll use our heat vision to hatch that egg. Come on now, pour it on. Like I mentioned before, this is basically the sea dragon with a diamond creature instead of a sea dragon. So Crypto and Superboy bake the egg with their heat vision and it hatches, denying Mama Diamond Creature from witnessing the birth of her child. Maybe they should have just brought the entire egg back to the hole and let her back that way. But they didn't. This is what they decided to go with. So the egg hatches and here they're holding the diamond creature and Superboy leads, puts it in the, uh, in the hole and... Then he leads the mother diamond creature back to the hole where she finds her child, presumably. Superboy fills in the hole, and we're getting to the end. And You know, as far as filling in the hole, maybe Superboy should have done that before he, he left the area. Maybe the diamond creature wouldn't have come up. It's an okay story. You know, it seems a little too similar to the Sea Dragon story for my taste. I'm at this point where I hopefully pray that we don't see too many uh, don't-take-the-egg stories. I'm not sure I can take very many more of them. Alright, so let's move right ahead to The Toys of Doom, written by George Cashton. This is a Superman segment, and our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Lois and Jimmy find themselves the prisoner of the Toy Man after being tipped off about its location. When destructive machines create havoc around Metropolis, Superman races around defeating them until he eventually ends up at Toy Man's hideout, where he defeats the toy army that awaits him saving Lois and Jimmy in the process, and leading Toy Man right into the arms of the police. So, we start with Lois and Jimmy doing what Lois and Jimmy do, sneaking into a warehouse. It's full of toys, and naturally one of them opens its mouth and sucks them both down into the basement, where the Toy Man is waiting for them, and I'm very happy to see we have another comics villain from DC Comics. <laughs> Welcome, my nosy friends. The Toy Man. I've been expecting you. You see, it was I who phoned in that anonymous tip. Why, Toy Man? Very simple. To keep your friend Superman off my back. Are you kidding? In case he should object to our use of my toys for my personal gain. Now look, if you think... Now here's an interesting toy. And if you will follow me to the roof, I will demonstrate what it can do. This time it is Winslow Shot, even though they don't mention his name here, the Toy Man. And this character is a natural for a kid's cartoons because of his gimmick, you know, fighting with toys. So here is Toy Man in a burgundy suit and some black hair. He's pudgy like his comics counterpart, but really looks nothing like the Toy Man that appeared in the comics. Which is strange, because when you're doing a cartoon, you can draw it and animate it to look any way you want. So why it would not resemble the Toy Man of the comics is something that I don't know. Looking at the drawing of the Toy Man. He looked kind of like John Noble, who I'm not sure was even active at this time. So the first thing the Toy Man is going to do is he's going to demonstrate an orange top. But meanwhile, back at the planet, here is Perry talking to Clark when he notices that the top that we just saw the Toy Man show Lois and Jimmy is burrowing into a skyscraper, basically sawing off the observation deck as Superman gives chase. It's pretty amusing when Perry is asking Clark for through the intercom, where he is, but he's gone. Superman catches the roof of the building and just kind of leaves it in the middle of the street. Hopefully there are no cars will be coming anytime soon, or they're going to have quite a mess on their hands. Superman grabs the top before it could destroy a bridge, and he just throws it into the river, and that apparently takes care of that. The Toy Man is, apparent, is appropriately unconcerned about it. 
because this is the late 60s, and the next he's going to attack an ocean liner with a disco ball, blinding everybody. Superman punched it to pieces, and we move on. Now he's going to use a calliope, because why wouldn't you use a calliope to attack the city? So he uses the music to uh, crack buildings and knock them down. We're going to see something similar to this in the 1990s, when we talk about the Lois and Clark, the New Adventures of Superman episode, The Wall of Sound, second episode of season two. Just the, uh, not necessarily the calliope, but the music causing the buildings to break seems to make me think of that episode. Obviously, I've seen that far more than this, but I do think it really would have been amusing if uh, the villain of that episode, Lenny Stoke, used the calliope to wreak havoc. Would make me laugh, I think. So, Superman grabs the calliope, monologues a little bit, and quickly turns it into a metal ball. And while all that was happening, looters have attacked, and Superman immediately connects it to the Toy Man. Superman! During the panic, a gang of robbers looted every shop on the street! And there's only one man capable of such wild crimes. The Toy Man. I guess the toys were a dead giveaway. But, you know, the animation didn't really make them look like toys. But I guess they look like toys to Superman, who finds the warehouse. Uh, Apparently Toy Man didn't bother to align it with lead. So Superman busts in, but the Toy Man has something up his sleeve. Toy soldiers that fire live rounds are threatening Lois and Jimmy. Because, of course they are. Okay, Toy Man, your playtime is over. Wait! Before you do anything rash, look down there. See that? It's a battlefield full of toy soldiers and war equipment. And they all fire live ammunition. Marvelous. But what does... But that's not all. Listen. Miss Lane. Olsen. Tell Superman where you are. Superman, we're locked inside a tank. Help us, please. A tank? Which one? Aye, that's the question, Superman. But since those toys are made of lead, the one substance your X-ray vision can't penetrate, you cannot find your friends. All right, what's your game, Toy Man? What do you want? Unless you leave at once, I'll order one of my hidden henchmen to set the war game in motion. And if the tank containing your friends gets blasted, well... The police! Right, Toy Man. They're coming for you. You tipped them, and you pay for that! Start the war! Apparently, Toy Man lined the tanks with lead, but not the warehouse. Okay. I guess he uh, didn't have as much lead lining as he needed. So the police show up, and uh, basically a war begins at Toy Man's request. Bullets bounce off Superman as he wrecks the toys, as Toy Man looks on in horror. Every time the camera cuts back to Toy Man, uh, he just looks more buff befuddled with every shot. It's pretty funny. Superman eventually saves Lois and Jimmy by karate chopping the lead tanks and here are the criminals uh, escaping and running right into the hands of the police. Pretty straightforward. The animation is what it is. All you see is Superman do a karate chop and a tank explodes. I'm not sure that's what would happen. They'd probably be a little bit more shearing than anything else, but Superman does find Lois and Jimmy on the third tank he destroys, so third time is definitely the charm. So Clark got the story, and Lois pointed out that Clark seemed to know what would happen in advance, and with a George Reeves wink that never gets old. Superman captures Toy Man by Clark Kent. Looks like Mr. Kent scooped you again, right, Miss Lane? Hmm. You got this story so fast, Clark, someone would think you knew what would happen in advance. I guess, Lois, that's because Superman and I think so much alike. Oh, you.
I like that one. It's always nice seeing comics villains in this show after never seeing them. Made good use of the toys in the Toy Man. My only complaint is that I wish Toy Man would have been more on model. But in an animated adventure, there's really no reason for him not to be. But the minor thing, it was the Toy Man. The gimmick worked as well as it would ordinarily. So, alright. I got really nothing more to say on that segment or any of the other two that I previously covered. So, I'm going to take a quick break, play another promo, and then I'm going to come back with the Superman segment... The Iron Eater, Superboy segment, the beast that went berserk. Then we'll go back to Superman, finish it up with the Ape Army of the Amazon. Hang around, folks. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's Superman Movie Minute. Chris Franklin and Rob Kelly take you on a journey through time and space, examining, five minutes at a time, the greatest superhero movie of all time, 1978's Superman. Coming soon to a podcast network near you. You'll believe five minutes can fly. All right, welcome back, folks. The original broadcast date for these next uh, three segments was October 29th, 1966. And we're going to start with the Superman segment, The Iron Eater. And this was written by Oscar Bensall. A meteor crashes into Metropolis with a shape-changing monster that eats iron and steel. Clark is riding with Lois on a train, and when she spots trouble up ahead, Clark leaves Lois behind to investigate and discovers the line is damaged, changes into Superman, and saves the train. Each time the monster causes some damage, it allays suspicion by shape-shifting its appearance. Superman eventually captures the monster as it prepares to eat a bridge, and he takes it to live on an iron asteroid. Alright, so here comes a meteor landing outside of Metropolis, and then it hatches, revealing the one of the worst-looking monsters you've probably ever seen. You know, I'm not saying that the creators of the movie saw this, but you could really paint this thing blue and pink, slap a tail on it, and it could look like uh, Sully, uh, John Goodman's character in Monsters, Inc. Especially with, especially with that big, stupid, doofy grin it has. But this thing is orange, very simplistic. It's got a large head, square body, and feet that don't look like they should really hold up this creature. And big, wide eyes. Its mouth is literally huge. So that's that. It uses those sharp teeth, and it's chowing down on the railroad tracks. But here comes a bear, and in order to uh, spook the bear, it turns into a copy of the bear. So then a track worker walking down the tracks finds the damaged tracks, but he can't flag down the train to get it to stop. And here are Lois and Clark on the train, returning from some kind of assignment. Now, I don't know what was what's wrong with the animation in this episode, but the close-up of Clark's face just, he looks old. More like Dick Clark than Clark Kent. So, Clark changes to Superman, and Superman outruns the train in a shot right out of the opening sequence of the show, and the train kind of loops and is rescued. It, you know, Superman must pick it up, and it just kind of looks like it goes up a hill and down, but just no hill underneath it. Superman says the track was chewed and asked if there's any suspicious characters around. He's going to say those, that phrase a lot. You're going to hear him say suspicious characters quite a bit. And I'm not even sure what this track worker would even know what to look for. I mean, when someone tells you that the track has been chewed, what would you think would be able to do that? If you guessed alien that fell out of the sky in a meteorite, you would be correct. 
but I'm pretty sure this track worker didn't think of that. But of course, the monster is going to follow Assigned to a Metropolis, because where else would the monster follow Assigned to in a Superman story? And wouldn't you know it, of all the cars he could eat, he tries to eat the one Lois's. And I'm not sure where they are, this might be the Daily Planet parking garage. So you can only imagine how many cars the Iron Eater had to walk by to get to Lois's vehicle. Just saying, the logic doesn't fit. If he was as hungry as we're led to believe, he'd be chowing down just about everything he's seen. And there's really no evidence that that happened. Oh, Clark! Great Scott, what happened to the car? A monster! Horrible! He... he ate it! A monster? Ate it? Where is it? Around the corner. So now the monster chases a guy sweeping an alley and takes his form and denies having seen the monster when Clark asks about it. But it's funny, when Clark is talking to the disguised uh, alley sweeper, Clark changes his mind and decides not to call it a monster. I wonder if there was something taboo about the word. I mean, why wouldn't he call it a monster? It is a monster. This monster, however, is pretty smart, even if it looks very unthreatening. As it uh, eats the skyscraper that's under construction, it changes into uh, the form of a security guard as it passes by. Superman saves the falling skyscraper and is questioned by a cop. Officer, were there any suspicious characters snooping around here tonight? The only person I've seen here was another policeman. What did he look like? Well, say, come to think of it, he looked like me. I've got to find that duplicate of you before he changes into something else. Up, up, and away! This is not the uh, sharpest uh, tool in the shed by any stretch. I think I'd be a little more freaked out if I walked somewhere and I saw an exact duplicate of myself just kind of hanging around. I might at least do a double take, but apparently this guy just kept on walking until the the information became important. So now the monster's about to eat a suspension bridge. Superman grabs it, and of course Lois and Perry are on the bridge watching Superman fight the monster, which now is changed into Superman, so now none of the onlookers have any idea which of the two combatants actually is Superman and which one is the monster. But, you know, watching Perry and Lois on the bridge, I love hearing Perry's dialogue, and I love that they brought Great Caesar's ghost over from the George Reeves series. So, Superman knocks out the monster and then flies it into space, you know, pretty much like he does with everything. That seems to be this Superman's favorite solution, just fly it into space. And apparently he found him an iron asteroid, so it could eat until it explodes, basically. And what does he do when he eats the entire asteroid? Does it just kind of float through space? I don't know. I guess we'll never find out. Then we get to the end with Lois commenting on the headline. Now there's a clever headline. Iron Eater Captured by Man of Steel. Man of Steel? It's a good thing he didn't take a bite out of me. She calls it clever. The headline is Iron Eater Captured by Man of Steel. See what they did there? Although it's a poorly worded headline. Man of Steel Captures Iron Eater is how I would have done it. For all of you budding writers and editors out there, always put headlines in active tense. And always lead your sentence with the subject that is acting, not the one being acted upon. In this case, the Superman is the one who performed the action of capturing the Iron Eater. The Iron Eater was acted upon, therefore Man of Steel captures Iron Eater is a much more active tense. So that takes care of that. That ends our uh, grammatical and journalism lesson for the day. I've mentioned that monster... Stories really aren't my thing, but you know what? There's going to be a lot of them probably throughout the course of this, so I'm going to have to get used to them. I prefer a little more deeper story anyway than these shows are going to provide. So I'm just going to kind of go through these and, you know, enjoy the ride until I get to some deeper stuff down the line. All right, so let's move on from that. We'll go to the Superboy story, The Beast That Went Berserk. This was written by Oscar Bensall. 
Professor Ames feeds a solution to a pygmy elephant that transforms it into a rampaging mastodon. Superboy and Crypto catch it so the Professor can give it an antidote. When the Professor's assistant reuses the potion, Superboy and Crypto must go to Africa to get the new ingredients for an antidote. Ugh, scientists, scientists, scientists. Some of these scientists never learn. But, you know what, Professor Ames is going to learn through the course of this segment, so I am at least happy to see that. So here we go, uh, Professor Ames and his assistant Carter are experimenting on an elephant. A few drops of this yellow little serum, and this elephant becomes an enormous el- mastodon. What are the ingredients in this serum, Professor Ames? A combination of chemicals extracted from peanuts and other elephant foods. With rearranged molecules? That's right, Carter. This will stimulate this pygmy's elephant body cells, turning her into a bigger, stronger species. Someday, Carter, even humans may benefit from such a serum. Holy smokes! Look at that! Good grief! She's growing too fast! The serum has changed her into a prehistoric mastodon. Watch out! And of course, all of this is happening right next to Smallville because, you know, where else would it happen? Uh, So there's an elephant going berserk. The police are shooting at it. Bullets are having no effect. And... It's a big disaster. Here comes Superboy, kind of flying in in their usual poses. Crypto uh, barks at the uh, Mastodon and kind of gets kicked off the screen for his trouble. And all that really did was kind of tick the dog off because now he's baring his teeth, trying to intimidate a Mastodon that's probably about ten times his size, if not more. So Superboy punches the Mastodon and it's out cold. Crypto, like all dogs do, will bark at it some more. Then Professor Ames just kind of runs up. Apparently he got some red serum, which is the antidote to the yellow one. Open her mouth, Superboy. Quickly. Okay. Uh, thank goodness I developed this antidote in case my growing serum got out of hand. So that's what it was. Yes. <laughs> She's returning to normal, Crypto. So he's not a completely stupid scientist. At least he has developed a cure in case, in case things got out of hand. But one quick transition later, it's a very jarring transition, and... All of a sudden, a mastodon is running through town again. I was very concerned about the video that I had at the moment of this episode because I'm glad to report that I wasn't watching, you know, the first minute again. This is the same shot of the elephant kind of running through town wrecking things, but it leads to a new scene. And then here comes Superboy and Crypto, and a part of me really wants to hear Superboy complain. Not again or something to that effect, but nope, it doesn't happen. Superboy never complains about doing his work in these shows. And never do the full, he just takes the Mastodon into the sky and flies it into a cave. Because putting a giant creature in a cave and leaving it unattended is always the best solution to these kinds of problems. But before Superboy and Crypto can leave, the mountain comes to them as Professor Aim brings his information. That should hold the poor unhappy beast. How could Professor Ames let this happen again? It wasn't I, Superboy. But how? Carter, my assistant, he lost his mind. The police have him in custody. Now I fear we must destroy that poor beast. Oh, no. It will take years to produce more of the antidote. How come? It's a chemical salt extracted from the fossilized stamping grounds of the African elephant. Salt, hmm? Africa? Apparently Carter gave the elephant the yellow serum again. There's no explanation for why Carter has done this other than he's lost his mind. And now he's in police custody. But we still have the rampaging elephant to deal with. So Ames is convinced that they have to put the elephant down because it's a dangerous animal. Which is regrettable, but, you know, that's kind of the law. Animals, you know, don't get the due process that humans do. If it's proved uh, they bit somebody or whatnot, they kind of get... 
put down immediately. That's kind of how the law tends to work in these parts. Hopefully it's different where you live. So Ames shows up, declares his innocence, and tells Superboy about Carter. But, you know, the only way they can make the cure to keep the elephant from having to be put down is to go to Africa. So, off to Africa goes Superboy and Crypto. They unceremoniously make a hole in the ground, grab the crystalline fossils that they need, and uh, take them up to the surface. And then, what I think is a good uh, tornado-like animation, they grind them up into powder. I mean, I think it would make more sense to do this in the lab, but they're going to do this work right out here in the field. Superboy kind of creates the serum with his hand, liquefying the powder or doing something to it. Basically exerting a lot of pressure. So, so meanwhile, back in Smallville, the elephant is after a school bus. But here are Superboy and Crypto, and uh, we previously saw them... Superboy pour the antidote into half of a coconut, and Crypto is carrying the coconut as they fly towards Smallville. Shouldn't Superboy carry it? I mean, he does have opposable thumbs, after all. So Superboy saves the bus, and the elephant drinks the serum and is returned to normal. And in an our ending scene, it's rather amusing that in the background, while Ames and Superboy are talking, you see Crypto and the elephant playing. You know, they seem happy that this mission is over. Thank you again, Superboy. I've decided to give up this dangerous experiment forever. A wise decision, sir. Now you'd better take your elephant and... Well, she's gone. So is Crypto. Up, up, and away! No, Crypto, you can't play with her now. But you may visit her anytime you want. At Small Bill Zoo. And I like that little detail in the back. You know, you don't hear me praise the filmation animation very much, but I like that the characters were doing something in the background. They're not just sitting there as if somebody took a picture of them. Fortunately, Professor Ames has decided to complete his dumbass experiment and move on to something else. But Crypto and the elephant are gone because Crypto and it are playing. The elephant has returned to the zoo, and we happily move on to our next segment. Which is the Superman segment, The Ape Army of the Amazon. We're going to get into some monkey business in this segment, folks. And this was written by Oscar Bensall. A disreputable scientist with a sonic device and a rogue soldier are using the sonic device to control apes in the Amazon. Clark is piloting a plane with, with Lois that crashes nearby. Superman saves Lois when the apes attack the plane and again inside a temple where the scientist is looting the treasure. Alright, so let's get right into this thing. Apparently these two evil military men are training apes and the scientist has a device on his back that he's using to control these poor apes. He, can, he basically communicates with them by banging on a drum, and apparently, the scientist, he understands chest beating. I'm not sure if I just stood in my living room and pounded on my chest, anybody would understand what I was talking about. They'd probably understand that I was crazy, but I don't think I'd get a message across. At least not a very good message. So Lois and Clark are now flying in on a seaplane, and they crash into the jungle due to some engine trouble. Clark ties the plane to a tree, and he changes into Superman. So meanwhile, Superman is hearing some supersonic tones and is checking them out. And here are the apes that are ringing some poor guy on a bell. The apes are ringing the bell, and he's kind of laying across the top of it. Looks like he's about to fall off any time now. Apparently he's one of the archaeologists that were there. Everybody else left to get on the boat, but he was left behind to ring the bell. So Superman kind of shows up at the bell tower, kicks the apes in the butt, and they scurry. Now this guy with his giant sombrero and his big mustache looks more Mexican than South American. But look who was running Hollywood at the time. White dude. They probably didn't know uh, Mexican from a Brazilian if they both walked up to him. They probably pictured that everyone south of the U.S. border looks like that. Gracias, senor. Gracias. What happened here? Where is everybody? I see army of apes. I sound alarm. Everybody escaping fishing boats but me. Great Scott. An army of apes. And I left Lois alone. 
So meanwhile, a bunch of apes are attacking the plane with Lois in it. Superman hilariously so kicks the apes away, even grabbing one of them by the ear. Lois asks Superman where Clark is, but Superman has no answer. He never does. No matter what incarnation of Superman, one constant is, the Man of Steel never has an explanation to where Clark is. I love that bit of consistency. So Superman and Lois find the excavation site deserted, save for a warning about apes on the march. It's deserted. Look at this. Beware. Apes on the march. Good grief. Don't worry, Miss Lane. You'll be safe inside here while I, uh, look for Clark. Well... And obviously we know that they're deserted because we saw the lone remaining archaeologist literally getting his bell rung. So Superman kind of confines Lois in this little building at the site and shuts it with a rock and goes to look for Clark. So meanwhile, the uh, apes beat their chest some more to inform the men that the archaeologists are gone. Now the bad guys can go get their gold. And criminals can't get along as the scientist offers to get the gold for the colonel. What a guy. He doesn't possibly want to make off with all of it on its own. But nope. The colonel pulls a gun on the scientist, forgetting that the scientist controls an army of apes. How do you think they go? How it goes is that the apes push him over a rock and Superman catches them, and then he finds out who's a real villain. Naturally, the apes go to where Lois is, and she runs afoul of the scientist who came in through the trap door. She gets tied up for her troubles, and the gold is found while the ape helps Rukus collect. Meanwhile, as the statues are kind of moving toward Lois, Superman shows up. The apes attack in a rather amusing spin move. He tornadoes them into unconsciousness. Simbu is worthless. He's put down quickly through a wall. And then Superman saves Lois. What about those vicious apes out there? This is what makes them vicious. Watch. Now they'll return to their natural, peaceful state. See? Now, Miss Lane, you wait here for Clark. I'll send him back as soon as I've delivered Rukas and Vasta to the local authorities. Lois is still concerned about the vicious apes after he captures Rukas, but one punch from Superman reverts the apes to their normal selves, and they kind of walk away. Yeah. This Gorilla episode made me think about Gorilla Grodd from the comics. He made his first appearance in 1959, so he was definitely available for use in this show. But not the Flash concept, not a Superman one. And this archaeological site is definitely no Gorilla City. So for the ending, Clark makes a crack about monkey business. Lois! Clark, are you alright? Sure, I went back to the plane and you were gone. What happened? Well, Superman rescued me from... You'll never guess what. I'm not sure, but I've got a hunch there was some kind of monkey business going on, right? Winks, and we're out. Another fun one. It's funny watching Superman deal with all these apes. So, next time, I will cover the next four Superman segments. The Fire Phantom, The Deadly Dish, Insect Raiders, and Return of the Warlock. And the next two Superboy segments. Superboy Strange's Foe and The Capricious Crony. And as I mentioned before in the opening, if you'd like to email the show, you can do so by sending an email to manofscreen at gmail.com. You can join the conversation over at the Facebook group. Just put Man of Screen Podcast into your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And please, leave me a review on iTunes. That helps people find the show as well. So I'd like to thank everybody for listening and I will talk to you next time. Bye. Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network.
and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the Two True Freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.